Hello and welcome back to the Comeback Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Connor, and as you know by now, this podcast delves into a wide variety of topics, including self-development, education, and much, much more. Now, my guest today is initially from Boston and has spent time in the US and the UK with a background in radio, academia, as a English teacher, and as a head of public speaking and debate. He was also my English teacher back in 2010, year nine in Hale Barnes, UK. Today, I'm talking to Mike Benjamin. Mike, welcome. How are you? Connor, really good to see you, mate. I'm doing just great. Thank you. Greetings from Boston. Absolutely. And just to give you a, a background, Mike, uh, what I usually do from my own experience and from speaking to so many guests is I'm always interested in how people are growing up and how their background shapes the, the person that they become today. So if you don't mind talking to me about your initial background, say, as a teenager, growing up in education or in Boston, what were you like as, say, a young man? And how did you develop, let's say, in your early formative years? Well, I, you know, I think that I'm like most uh, males in their, in their teens. I was uh, thick, really. I mean, I was interested in, as be, in being an athlete, you know, dreams of, of playing perhaps in the NFL. And I went to a I went to an all boys high school, much like the school that we knew each other from. Indeed. And it was a thousand boys and it was a, a Catholic school and it was known for us athletics. And I, I selected going there because the feeling in the Benjamin household, which was very male, was that if I could play for them, I could play for any country, any college in the country. So um, so that was my whole emphasis. And then there was a there was a switch and a change. And I took a, a knee injury, which ended things for me. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's where it all began. And then it was off to college, really. Excellent. And so without, say, that knee injury, do you think that perhaps changed things for you as in you had to think of things from a more academic side rather than from a sporting perspective? No, you know, I, I uh, so often I say to, to, um, the students, parents of students, oh, don't worry about the, the young man, the, the gentlemen are thick as pickles until about their junior year in college. And then, then somehow the penny drops, so to speak, and every, their intelligence kicks in and it, um, and it's, it, it's cons consumative. It, it just, it just, they just suddenly get it. And for me, that was, that's how it was. I remember being a, a junior, at university and feeling out of in America, it's a four-year degree. Where in Britain, it's a three-year degree um, for for a bachelor's of arts or a bachelor of science. And I remember in my fourth year, suddenly I just decided I was going to be serious, and I decided that I was going to read English as a major. And I just it felt great to be able to just be reading four different texts at any any given time. And, um, and not considering it work, I just, I just enjoyed the language. And that's, that's when it took off for me. Right, I see. And did you have any, let's say, personal influences, any teachers or any mentors that helped? I had many. I had many. I had very, I had many of them. Um, and I would say this probably for, you know, for wannabe educators or people interested in the craft, because everything's a craft, you know, writing's a craft, education's a craft, music, sports, whatever your chosen area is. Um, you know, I think that for trainers, educators, instructors, the most important thing is encouragement. You know, find the thing that you can encourage because that's what unleashes that's what unleashes um, talent, really. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering here about encouragement because as someone who went to an old boys Catholic school, as you know, it's hard to, I think, find areas of encouragement in young men. As in, I've spoken before that I was quite disillusioned from, say, 11 to 16. And if you'd have said to me, what do you like? What can you encourage? I probably would have just shrugged and gone, oh, I don't know. Uh, I like football. Like, I probably would not have given, say, an answer to actually give any clear sense of direction for an educator to sense encouragement. So I'm wondering, how do you sense encouragement from, say, young men when they're perhaps disillusioned as well? Well, I, th- I don't think they I don't think they identify their strengths where an outside person comes right in and they see them freshly. It's a blank piece of paper, really. And they notice what they like. And, um, you know, go back to earlier question. I remember being at university and I was writing a, a piece for um, an English professor. And, the, and it was the greatest compliment I ever saw in my life. He wrote on it. He wrote, Michael, your prose sings. S-I-N-G-S. It sings. And it was, it was from that moment that I knew I can do this. No different than perhaps listening to your voice and you got a certain resonance to it and you and, and looking in a, in a, in a sea of a, you know, a room that maybe has 18 or, or 25 kids in it, watching you hold their attention. It has to do with bearing. It has to do with the quality of your voice, the depth of it. It's an ancient thing. Um, but I could see there was talent there. And that was the basis of that. Right. Excellent. Yeah. I think having that perception is key, especially if you are going to be an educator and you are going to provide that encouragement. And I find it interesting that encouragement was the first thing mentioned because it's, it's often, let's say it's, it might be the obvious theme of when you're an educator to give encouragement, but it's perhaps not the one that you initially come across as when you get into a classroom, there are so many different things that you need to not worry about, but be aware of what, other, let's say, themes or ideas should you be aware of besides encouragement when trying to educate young people? Um, When I first got into education, it wasn't academic education. I was a Dale Carnegie instructor. Dale Carnegie is a a well-heeled, you know, it's a moneyed organization that teaches uh, business directly to business, you know, how 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 to speak publicly, Dale Carnegie public speaking course, how to advance products into the market, Dale Carnegie Advantage. It was a sales course for which I was a global instructor for. And, um, and it's, about, it's about fine-tuning approaches. Um, and, uh, and forgive me, I came off track a little bit. What was your question again, Connor? My question was um, themes alongside encouragement that are important oh, yeah. in educating young people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, I think that people... You know, the brain takes a long time to mature. In fact, I don't, I don't really think it really starts maturing and understanding its capacity until you're about 28, even though people present really maturely, you know, at 18 to university years, they're still very uh, influential there and they, and they don't know what it is they want at that time. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, sorry, I'm slightly incoherent. I just, I lost my thread. Ask, yeah, ask me. Ask me again what you want. Um, it's basically any key themes alongside encouragement that are important. For yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I, think, I think the most important thing is understanding the power of repetition. There's nothing as great as repetition. Quite a lot. I, you know, quite a lot I have students who are, um, I teach a lot of students today who are dyslexic and have ADHD, like my son. Never did I think he would have a shot at getting through um, 
uh, university, but he did, and he got his, his Bachelor of Science, you know, which was an extraordinary thing, right? And he was also, a, you know, an All-American rugby player. Um, repetition is the most important thing. You, you think, you become consumed as an instructor, an educator, that you're not, you're not moving through the syllabus quick enough. You're not, you're not covering things quick enough. But what you come to find out is that the more you fall back and you repeat what is important, you know, the, the core element. As an English teacher, you and I know there's nothing more important than the simple sentence, right? Everything is drives off the simple sentence. Once you unlock the simple sentence, you unlock the compound, the complex sentence, you unlock sentence starters, you unlock really good writing, really clever writing, but it's all based on the basics. So my, my comment is decide what is important and own those elements with your students, own them you know, tear them down, build them back up to the point where they thought it was their idea. It's so natural. It's so natural understanding those, those principles, right? That they think that they invented them because they've been working with them, thinking about them for so long. And, you know, in times of uh, difficulty for a student, for any human, and in times of great achievement, when you're really flying, the answer is mechanics, right? Foundational elements. It's no different than, you know, it's the old, it's the old saying, it's 10,000 hours to become a concert pianist or 10,000 hours to be an Olympic athlete. It's the time that you spend on the essentials that unlocks your, your, um, your talent. So I would say to any educator, repetition, consider that concept, consider it deeply and broadly. Excellent. No, I think there's certainly a place for repetition. And it sounds so, I suppose, obvious, keep repeating and repeating, but ultimately that's how the brain works. And that's how we... The other thing, the other thing I'll say to you that I believe in very strongly is um, rapport, right? Rapport. How do you get rapport? At, 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 at a certain position, it is, it's a gift to be able to build rapport with a student, whether it's a, whether, whether it's a, uh, uh, a traditional university or academic student, or whether it's an adult relationship, but you're in instructional capacity, right? So it's a gift, okay? But having said that, the key thing is to talk to every student, no matter who they are, you've got to speak with them. You need to level with them. Talk, tell them the truth. Don't posture. Find out who they are and speak with them. And once they sense that you're level with them, you're not speaking at them, or to them, you're always speaking with them, asking their opinion, asking them if they're comfortable going forward, thanking them for working with you, because you know, it's hard. And sometimes it's just a drag to be doing it, but to speak with them. When you do that, magical things happen. And that is they trust you. When they really trust you, they're willing to take chances for you. And you and I know, the only way you're gonna have breakthrough if you're a struggling student or a struggling business person is to take a chance. You've gotta take a chance. And for the high flyers, when you're gifted to have them, I just had a student report to me, they got into Stanford. And let me tell you, that was really exciting. That's a very difficult get. That's like, an, that's like uh, Oxford or Cambridge, right? Very, very difficult to get that. And uh, I knew it. I knew it from way back that, that this young man was going to do it. Um, and, you know, you have to be able to meet their pace too, right? So if it's a high flyer, it's about the extension how far can you extend them? How far can you take them? And that's pretty freeing too. You know, my, my popular comment is we're going to freeform now and we're going to go off piste, right? Let's ski together. Let's, let's go. You write and I'll write. Let's see. Have you got game? Let's see what you can do. And I'll show you what I can do. And many times I come up short, but it's exciting. 
right? It's really exciting. And, and also, you know, for the student who's challenged, I was teaching a boy today. I, um, I work in private instruction now, just private. And um, I was teaching a boy today, ADHD, autism, dyslexia. He, he was very meek when I first had him two years ago. He's only probably 14 years old now, but we were writing together today, right? I taught him to write by looking at comic books because he liked comic books. And you may know from comic books, they were invented like in about the time of the depression, about 1929 in America. And um, they're notable for their use of punctuation. They use it very cleverly, right? And it's very instructive. In a lot of simple sentences, and I'm a big fan of the clarity and the tension of a simple sentence. So we were writing today, free-forming. I'd give him a command. I want a complex sentence. I want a, 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 um, a compound sentence. He'd give me a command. I want a compound complex sentence. I want two simple sentences. And we would write. But it had to be, it had to be with the same tone, right? And it had to be married. And uh, what a great exercise. So my other comment to educators is don't be afraid to experiment, right? Experiment. Sometimes they fall flat on their face, but when it works, it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. And it's just got my mind jogging back to the phrase, we're burning daylight, boys. And that was when. Yeah. Yes. Because yes. I think, I think that, you know, I think in, you know, before, in, in, in teaching instruction, may I call it either or is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it demands pace, right? Because as I always say to my students, I said, the, the, the one thing that I promise you is that I'll speak straight with you at all times. But the other thing I also promise you is I'll try never to bore you because I don't want to be bored, right? And that creates pace, right? You've got to bring pace and urgency. And, you know, we all know as educators from the front position of the room, um, if you are excited, then they are excited. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. If I'm nodding, you're nodding. If I say, come on, we're burning daylight. Let's go. We're going to start moving. And everybody's smiling. And when we're smiling and we're nodding, we're having a good time. That means that people are receptive, right? They're suddenly enjoying the environment and they're not feeling threatened by it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I still remember those kind of, uh, those kind of exercises really taking hold and actually bringing it to another level where it wasn't just like, let's say, the typical slog that you're used to. And I'm wondering, how do you let's say, go about experimenting? Do you say, assess the students and think, right, they like comic books, let's switch it to this style? Or do you think of, say, current events that might interest them? How do you, let's say- Well, yes, let's talk about that. I think that the, the, first, the first question, it's, it's intuitive, you know, and it typically happens for me when I'm preparing, you know, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm preparing. Uh, it, it, you know, I get an idea, and, uh, and I'm thinking about the student because it's all about, you know, meeting them where they are and their understanding. You know, sometimes we got to go backwards. Sometimes we get to go forward. Sometimes we got to move sideways. So it's all about that moment of you got to take time to think about them. What do they need right now? Sometimes, sometimes if it's not going well at all, you got to fall back completely and start again from another position. Right. Because maybe um, any number of things could have been off. So it's a, it's a reflection, reflection. It's, it's, a, it's a contemporary word in education, but it's an important one. Where are you with the process? Um, and um, what was the last bit about it? The last bit was current events. Do you ever look at that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, so, um, uh, so when, I was, uh, when, I left, when I left your good company, sir, uh, I, you know, I carried on in England and, uh, and I moved down to the East Midlands right down to the East Midlands. 
Warwickshire, Shakespeare country down that way. Yes. Yes. The Bard. I'm sure he was from there. I'm sure. I used to say to my classes, I'd say, I'm certain. I'm certain his bloodline is running through this school. I just don't know who it is, but I will find out. I will find this out because I'm certain of it. And um, uh, I started to um, uh, teach public speaking and debate. And we were, we were, and that comes from Dale Carnegie there, right? I started there. And um and we did pretty well. We would typically show up at an event and we would, um, you know, I would, I would, my students, we would, we would decide on a topic to discuss. And I always liked current events, right? And this was the thing about current events. It was exciting. And we would talk about, uh, more so when I went to uh, St. Um, uh, I was at another school in the Midlands. It'll come to me in just a second. But when they hired me there, they said, can you win? We want to make a prime minister, Benjamin, Mr. Benjamin, can you win us trophies? And I said, well, I don't know what the prime minister thing, but we'll win some trophies. And um, so we had a debate club, um, uh, um, Radcliffe College. It's in the East Midlands. Okay. So much like, much like uh, St. Ambrose, except it was mixed men and women. And, um, and they wanted to debate, but it was very difficult to get the program going. And most schools do have difficulty because it's seen as it's kind of nerdy, kind of dorky, you know, the, the, the athletes don't really want to do it. It has this, it has a sense of like dust all over it. You know what I mean? It seems old. So, so, um, I, but I had a different experience with it because of the Dale Carnegie thing, you know, it, it completely shaped my career because I did that. It was always my calling card in. And so what we did is we, uh, we would meet every Thursday at lunchtime, right? And I remember the first class, I had two kids in there. It looked dire. You know, it was, it was co-curricular, so they would show up. And, um, and after that, we started to grow because it was a formula emerged. And the formula was I would take the, we would look at the top of the world news cycle, right? What was happening in the news, right? And in America at that time, they were legalizing marijuana. Um, so we did a debate on should marijuana be legal, right? Now the topics we chose were dangerous topics. We were, I was in a Catholic school and as it matured, um, we decided that we would do abortion, right? And that was such a sensitive, in a Catholic school, right? It was such a sensitive topic that the person who uh, outranked the headmaster was the father, the senior father of the school, right? Priest. And so I'd have to go to him for approval on that. And um, are you okay? Yes. Because your, your video is breaking up a little bit. Oh, okay. But we'll, con- <laughs> we'll continue. And um, so we would do abortion. We would do, um, we always structured as parliamentary debate. Uh, this house believes that uh, marijuana should be illegal, right? Of course, they'd all say, well, it should be legal. We'd say that uh, this house believes that the abortion should be a right. Um, and when we did that, we put 200 people in the room at lunchtime. 200 people in a room that fits 35 that were hanging off the, off the walls. Um, and the, and the, the teachers would get involved with it too, because it was so tasty. We would do is the book is dead. The book is dead, right? I defy you not to have something to say about that. So we would do these very tense topics that were on the news cycle on national basis, right? And eventually the students would bring the, uh, the proposition to me and I would say yes or no, I'd publish it that morning. So there's always tension against it. And, uh, and they'd come in droves for it. They'd come in droves. And then we would, um, then we did um, debates where we would have four people and I'd had 
um, I would say we're going to do a debate. I used to say we're going in, we're going forward into danger yet again, people, right? I said because it was very dangerous. We we put we put a hundred people in a room, and sometimes we debate for a <clears> thousand. We did um, we did election debates. We did all sorts of debates, and there'd be four people. And I said, I don't care what year you're in. The best debaters will will I will choose them. You're up for selection. It was like choosing an international rugby team. So they all wanted to get selected. So uh, so we would select them, and we would we would perform. And the interesting bit was it had it had a it had a, a structure to it. We'd have um, uh, opening questions, uh, and we would we would debate three or four questions, and then at the end we'd have audience questions, right? Live questions from the audience. At first, we positioned the questions into the audience, right? So there were no surprises. But that got old, and we wanted the danger, so we go to live questions, and it was really exciting. It was really really exciting. And then we branched off and we went into, we had public speaking championships and there were various public speaking championships. There was one or two that were held in the country. Um, and we decided as a school that we would be the third leg of the, of the, of the triangle, if you were much like tennis has um, uh, Wimbledon and um, the Australian open and the New York and, and then the, um, and the U S open, right. We were going to be a uh, footprint for that. So we did that. And, um, and it was great. It was uh, a five minute presentation and it was about many things, um, but it had a, it had a strict mark sheet attached to it. And we would bring in particular judges for it. And we had cash prizes and it was, they'd come, they'd flock for it. And it was just remarkably fun. So taking chances was your question, right? Look to the international news cycle. You'll find your material there. And it was the thing about it, you know, the human condition is we all like a look to be a little bit naughty. Okay. We all want to be a little bit naughty. We like it because it's exciting. And, um, and when you talk about those things, it's like smoking a cigarette out back of the school. Right. And to be able to do that publicly is intoxicating. And we would do things like um, we had entrance music, you know, like a late show. And uh, so you know, I, I would, I would, I was a big fan of the Rolling Stones and Oasis, kind of dad's music, you know, um, I can't, you know, I can't get no satisfaction and, and all sorts. And they would have their own playlists. And so the environment was very contemporary music to the heads in the theater, right to the heads. Um, the room would be full. We used to do frequently once a quarter, a, a whole school debate, thousand people fill the room. Right. And it was exciting. The whole thing was exciting. In fact, many times for me as the moderator, it would be, I, I have this, public speakers have this, if you talk to them, they have this experience frequently, is that you'll sit there and, and everything is, you know, is, is pretty well stagecraft, right? To, to every movement, right? But, when it, but when, when, it was when it was go time and the spotlight would hit me and I'd be in front of a thousand people, sometimes I'd go blank because the tension of the moment, I couldn't remember anything, right? I remember one such time I was sitting there and it was a particularly massive room and I'm looking at them and I, and I get this feeling. It's like a, my, my head goes blank. I can't remember like a blank piece of paper. I can't think of anything. So I'm waiting because it's happened before, right? It's not quite Alzheimer's, right? It's, it's stage fright, right? That's what it is, it's stage fright. I'm looking around the room and I'm saying, it's going to come. It's going to come because if I, I know in past, if I wait long enough, as soon as the first sentence comes, then it all comes, right? But I remember looking and waiting and waiting 
and waiting and waiting. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not going to happen this time. And then finally it did come. And I was debriefing with some people after and they said, wow, that was great tension you created for that silence. And I said, you know what the story is? I couldn't remember what I wanted to say, but we had a lot of fun with that. So I do encourage you to take risks. If you speak to your students, no matter what their age is, adult to adult, even though they're young and you have, there's a certain responsibility that comes with that, as, as you can appreciate, right? But if you speak with them, adult to adult, as, as an equal, not at them, too many teachers are pedantic and they speak down. If you speak with them, then you get the report. If you encourage them to get dangerous with you in a proper way, right? They, they can't resist it, nor can anyone else. And that's when you light the fuse. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm looking at this example and I wish, I almost wish I was there for this whole school tournament and especially those lessons where it'd be at lunchtime and you get live questions. I'm just picturing. Right. Saying, I'll, tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another, quick, I'll tell you another quick story about that. So we were doing this public speaking championship and, um, and the way they had to win it, the way you got to represent the school is that every single year group um, from seven through 13 uh, would present in houses. We had a house system. And so the winners would then face off against each other for the right to represent the school, right? So they were battle hardened by the time they got to the end of it. And I had this woman, this young woman, uh, she got up and she talked, I'm trying to think about what her topic was. Um, she talked about, um, social media likes and that sort of thing. And it was, you would, and I perhaps would consider it together, social media relatively in its infancy, relatively so, relatively so, five or six or seven years ago. Um, And her presentation, which timed out to um, like four minutes and 55 seconds against the universe of five, right? Was so rhythmic um, that, I decided to write, rewrite the manual with public speaking and that it had to be based on rhythm, right? Where previously, and I, and I still hold to it, anecdote is the, is, the, is the number one thing, is the number one thing that we go for, anecdote, right? But the rhythm was so spectacular. It was almost like a rap, not quite, but with standard language. Right. It was so spectacular that I rethought all my teaching. Right. And I said, right, I'm going to teach internal rhyme. I'm going to teach parallelism. I'm going to teach um, I'm going to teach uh, consonants, assonance. I'm going to study the great speeches and I'm going to I'm going to show you what Kennedy did. I'm going to show you what Churchill did. Right. And I'm going to challenge you to meet that standard. But that's what watching one champion did for me it made me rethink the art of speaking. I think that goes to the lesson of the students can teach you just as much as you teach them. If you let them, I think you gotta, you gotta give them their head, you know, and, um, and sometimes that's not the easiest thing to do, but uh, do take risks, do trust them by speaking with them, you know, talk to them. And I never ever made anybody do something if they didn't want to, never. Never. If you didn't want to do it, no problem. If you want to back out, back out now, but back out right now. Uh, but, and I think, I think that's important too, but, um, but you know, good times, man. Very good times. Yeah. And I'm wondering here, this relates to education, what we're talking about, but you've also done this with say CEOs and in the radio industry, 
Yes. How, how does it differ from, say, doing it in an education setting in high schools compared to with CEOs, people in radio and more? I think that when you work, I think when you work um, in private industry, the thing that it teaches you is that you, 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 we're all accountable, but you're enormously accountable, right? You either hit your targets at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, or at the end of the year, if you don't, right? I was talking to my son today who just got out of school and he got himself a very good job in marketing, proper salary, um, a good trajectory, a big enough footprint where there's some place to go. He's not alone in a department. So he has time to train. He's got someone to train him. Just what I'd want for him. And I said, remember this, right? That as much as that CEO may like you, he might be an athlete like yourself. You have a good laugh. He will measure you if, whether you perform or whether you don't. And he won't be sympathetic. There'll be no tears at the end of that trial period. He'll either get rid of you or he'll keep you. Not based on whether he likes you. And that surely helps you, Right but you've got to perform. So in the private world, you realize that, you know, you've got to get up firing out. It's not, you know, education is difficult too. And you know, from the teaching end, um, it can be quite um, um, difficult, pernicious even, you know, and you know, you're under threat all the time. If, it, if a parent says the wrong thing about you and the Chinese whispers start, it can be ugly. It can get ugly fast. Um, so there is that. But um, and, and so, so working with um, experienced people, um, for me, I was a very young man when I started doing that. I was 25 when I was certified as a Dale Carnegie, a global instructor. And, um, and I was teaching people who were 50. And you could see it. They didn't like it. They didn't understand, you know. But the thing was, the content of what I was teaching was tight. It was very good. It was excellent. No, no different than, than the English language is tight. It is so good. The more I examine it, the more I need to examine it, right? My number one thing with students today is, to, is I say to them, you know, you would think with all my education, I would have the answers, but I don't. I look stuff up all the time. I was talking to them about um, something technical, which you'll appreciate. Um, I was talking to them the other day about um, um, about prepositions that that precede um, um, not prepositions relative pronouns relative pronouns and subordinate conjunctions that that always precede a um, uh, a complex sentence and I said there's only twenty of them but you got to know them you have to know them if you know them then you know you're working with a complex sentence why do you need to know that because it's in the mark scheme and if you don't give varied sentence structures then you don't know but more importantly right I said here's what happens when you look that up for yourself right you remember it right and here's what happens in life when you go into business you know so you, we, we you trade emails obnoxiously all day long and with the Senior members of staff, typically they're pretty bright fellows and they got some education behind them, right? And when they get your email, they look at it and people, they go like this when they see a semicolon used correctly, they nod it, right? They just, they nod. And that nod means this kid's got game. He knows how to write. He's intelligent, right? And that goes a million miles, but you got to know how to do it. And that takes toil, man, blood and toil to figure out how to do that. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, no, I believe so. Yeah. I was saying, is it similar from education to working with CEO? Yeah. 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 So, so it's about content. If you're teaching good content, right. If you have good content, uh, then you can deliver it. And the other thing about content is you got to know the content. So, you know, as they say, there's a, there's a, 
a pie, pie chart for learning, right? So much is done through the eyeball, the majority, call it maybe 55%. Maybe 35% is done through, you know, um, uh, through the year, right? 10% through, through doing it, right? And we're filling up that pie, right? The final 5%, I'd have to check my numbers, but the final 5% is teaching it, right? Can you, do you know the information well enough that you can teach it? And I'll ask that question to my high flyers a lot. Can you teach it? And if they look at me and say yes, and, and I say to them, look, the only thing that I ask is that we tell each other the truth. So when they say yes, I take them at their word. And if they can teach it, then I know they know it. You've got to be able to teach it. So is the content great? And can you teach it? And when I used to get ready, so when I taught Dale Carnegie, it was, um, it was one hour a week. It was four hours a night and it was 13 weeks and you got university credits for it. So it was an accredited course. So in order for me to teach uh, four hours, I would, I, would, I would probably run a class through my head for 16 hours and I would do that. I'd go out for a run. And if I ran for an hour, that was an hour. And if I ran five times and I did five hours of run through, then um, I was getting pretty close to being able to teach it. And I would teach it to the point where I could, I could give you a page number and tell you to go to that page without thinking about it because I prepared to tell you to go to that page, right? It's like this. You prepare your mind. P public speaking and instruction is the same thing. You prepare your mind much like the guy at the circus, right? You know, the circus, they've been phased, phased out for cruelty of the animals. But the image is always the Barnum and Bale of circus and you got the lion's tamer, right? And he goes to Philadelphia, London, Chicago, Boston, Hong Kong. And every time he does his act the same, he opens the lion's head at the exact same moment in the performance, at the climactic moment, the height of the tension. And he puts his head in that lion's mouth and the crowd roars, right? But why does he always do it at the exact same moment? It's because the crowd roars, right? So you got to have the content and then you've got to rehearse the content. You must rehearse the content so that you can deliver it. So, you know, the best teachers, they perform. And, and the difficult thing with performance art, which it is, it's the highest, it is of the highest order language. I would make that, I would make that proposition. And I say to you and I say to everybody in Vietnam, America and the United Kingdom, send all comers to me to debate that discussion. It is of the very highest order. order. Um, it just takes, uh, you need to love it and enjoy it, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta perform it and deliver it. And what comes with that is, is the tension, you know, the tension buildup and the tension swing down is difficult. You know that, right? You teach in seven classes a day, you get flat after, after a high performance, don't you? Absolutely. So, that, so there's that moderation as well. Mm. Have you ever, I was, I was going to ask you, has it ever bombed? Of course it has. Like if you do trial and error, are there any, moments that stick out for you where for good or for bad where you've thought right i've hit the sweet spot here or i've completely bombed and need to pivot are there any examples that come to you from let's say your experiments and your performances well yeah well yeah you know um i i would say that um the essence of achievement is risk you know it's preparation the essence of achievement is natural ability which basically give me a guy who's average, who's above average, but is willing to work hard and I can make you a champion, right? So you have to have some level of ableness. 
after that, it's about working at it. You, 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 can't, you can't get good at anything unless you really work at it. And if you work long enough, long enough, it's something that usually does come right for you. Not always, but it usually does come right. And, um, and I, I've always been a risk taker with my career. Um, and, you know, when it comes up right, it comes up really right. You know, I remember years in, in, in business, um, I was with a radio station in Boston, a fair few of them. And, um, and at the end, I was with a, a group, a small group, and I was a, an equity holder with that group, which meant I was an owner of the group, right? And my job in those years was to recruit, hire, and train all the advertising salespeople. And that was the engine of the business. That's how we made money, right? And if you could get your bit, your radio station making enough money, then you would take your gross amount of sales. Let's say it was a million dollars, right? Or a million pounds. You pick the denomination. And if you could get it up there, the selling rate was seven times that amount. So if I took you, you hired me to work for you. I said, yes, sir, Connor, I can do that for you. I'm fairly confident I can make that happen. I can get us up to a million dollars in three years. And maybe you bought it for quarter of a million, but if I can get it to a million in three years, you'll be able to sell it for 7 million, right? So my cut might be 2 million out of that 7 million, but that was the business. Okay. So, so, so it, you know, that was, that was the rain making end of the business. And if you could make the rain, then you could, then you got all, you got it all, you got everything, you got everything you wanted to have. And, um, and I had moments, you know, I had years where I made a bonus that was 200,000. Go figure. For me, that was a lot of money, a lot of money, you know? And, and I had years where uh, I was fired. I'll tell you a story about that. So I went to this, I was a, a general manager and I went to this um, conference at the University of Notre Dame. You ever heard of it? Obvious. South Bend, Indiana. It's probably the most famous Catholic college in America. It's private and it's hard. And they, ha they have an endowment an endowment um, allows a college to continue through a university to con continue through wars without interruption. They don't need anyone's money. They have an endowment that's tax free. Okay. Tax free. And people like Ray Kroc gave to that endowment. Ray Kroc was the guy who invented McDonald's, right? He was an old Catholic and they had guys like uh, Eddie DiBartolo with NFL football fans. He used to own San Francisco 49ers. So when you went to the university of Notre Dame, it was harder to get in. They had an endowment that was bigger than anyone else's, and it was harder to get into Notre Dame than it is to get into Harvard, right? And getting into a Harvard, getting to, into Harvard is virtually impossible, virtually impossible. So I was at the University of Notre Dame, and it's like walking through central casting, you know, in California. It was just spectacular. And I was there with a group of general managers, and there were probably eight, ten of us, and uh, we were there for skill-based training about how to increase revenues, how to increase programming, you know, stuff from the top. And, um, and everybody is, you know, it's the nature, everybody's kind of posturing, you know, shoulders back, chin up, you know, like I'm, I'm the greatest and the bestest, all immaturity, right? It's all immaturity. Um, so we're there for four days. And on the fourth day, after being together, working together, having a, a couple of pints together in the evening, we're relaxing, we're getting to know each other, we're trusting each other now, right? And it's all, we're all smiles and handshakes and hugs at the end. Last day, we're sitting in a horseshoe around a table. And they say, um, 
Right. So uh, welcome again. This is our last morning together. And we want you to know that we've put you around the horse table because they had a chart on personality types. You know, when you look at personality types, you have amiable. These are the really agreeable people in the world. Um, and then you have um, four different quadrants leading all the way up to the, the aggressive quadrant. Right. And each of them have characteristics about who people are. And so one corner was the amiable. Right. The, the very quiet people very quiet people, almost super shy people who I highly respect. Some of my best friends are the really super shy people. That's where the real intelligent lies in the world. People are quiet. <clears throat> and then on the very right-hand corner was the person who was so aggressive that they thought their head was going to pop off any minute. Guess who that was? That was me, right? <laughs> that, was me. that was me, right? And then they said, and after we all had a laugh at that, they said, how many of you, all general managers, all in the business for more than 20 years, how many of you have been fired? To your point, to your question, fired. Every single hand went up. Every single hand went up, right? We all think it's, it's, a, it's a sin to be fired. My, my God, you can't get fired from anything. But I would say to you that um, while it really hurts when it's happening and you go into a free fall for a fair few weeks, could be even be a fair few months if the markets are dead, which has happened to me. I've lost a business too. I went into a... Um, I went into, um, so I went to the UK before I came to know you and I, um, I was in the radio business there and I was a, a group director for a company called the wireless group and they had 13 radio stations. One was in uh, Talksport out of London. You'll probably know that. Um, it had Imagine FM in Manchester. That would have been your, your part of the market. And it had 13 others. And, um, and I parachuted in from Boston, got myself a job there. And, and I scored a lot of goals real early and they made me a group director over the whole thing, right? So uh, I left them because I couldn't, get, I couldn't get my equity back. And I had a piece of the business in America. I wanted a piece of the business there. And it was absolute hubris on my part, hubris, pure arrogance, the height of arrogance, hubris. So um, I went to work for um, um, a bunch of guys and I opened up a business for them out of Mauritius. Do you know where Mauritius is? It's in the Indian Ocean. So to, to give you some calculation, go to the Horn of Africa. Can you, can you picture that? Yes. Horn of Africa, right? Go to the right. You see Madagascar, like you see in the James Bond films. Go to the right of that in Indian Ocean, and you get to a place called Mauritius. So I went out there because the people could speak English really well, and I was looking for offshore medical transcription right do it overnight at price so um so i did that business and negotiated a really meaningful deal for myself including equity right equity again and it just and i didn't like my partners and i got out as soon as i could i went on a six-month um, garden leave as you and i know in britain it means that you can't compete so they put you on the sidelines they pay you but you can't talk to anyone you got to leave everything behind so i decided that i would uh I would uh, do it myself at the end of those six months and use my own capital. So I did. And I was, and I was really aggressive. I had two little boys and I had a wife and I had a mortgage and, um, and I believed, I believed I could do it, but because of my contracts, um, I had to get different suppliers, which meant I had to leave the continent really. So this time I went to India and I opened up factories in India, right? And, um, 
and I and I and I thought it was a winner. I thought the proposition was too hot to handle, and it was going to make me millions. I was convinced of it. Convinced, right? So um, after a year, it failed. The demand wasn't there. I had to roll it up, and I had to really eat humble pie. Really eat humble pie. And it was at that time, and you know, and I and I went through terrible loss. You know, terrible loss. I lost the. I lost. I lost the house. I got divorced. <clears throat> it was no picnic. It was no picnic. So, um, and it was at that time that I asked myself fortuitously, I said, what do I want to do with my life? And we were also in a recession, a deep recession. I said, what do I want to do? And I said, you know, I loved, I loved the, I loved the teaching with Dale Carnegie. And I loved, I just loved the language and the books and the prose. I said, I'm going to be an English teacher. And that's when I met you just then. Absolutely. So I've, I've seen, I've seen great wins and great losses. Right. But you, but you, uh, you know, they, they talk about resiliency, you know, as a word, don't we talk about that a lot? Resiliency. Yeah. You have to be resilient. You're going to face failure a lot. I mean, Churchill, he failed so badly as, as Naval secretary at Gallipoli that they were never going to give him an office again. And he used to write books to make a couple of bucks on the side. It was terrible for him. Lincoln, you know, the great Abraham Lincoln, 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation. And what a writer he is. Study him, man. Um, talk about subordination. My goodness gracious. Lincoln failed seven times at business. Right. So, you know, there's no end to it. Teddy Roosevelt, the great president who's on the Rough Riders, he's on Mount Rushmore in America. He failed so many times he, he couldn't count them. So, it's inevitable, right? Disappointment is inevitable in, in life and failure is inevitable too. But the, the important thing is you got to keep going, right? You got to keep going. And I'm not saying that everybody should extend the way I'm made. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you should take risks, right? In a managed way or else you won't grow. And if you do fail, then you're learning and you'll do it better next time. Right. So for me, I'm kind of on my third career now. And I never would have thought that I was going to be a private instructor, a writing instructor, instruction writing instructor. Right. And I and I write for some people, too. I never th would have thought that I would have been doing that. And then COVID hit. And before you know it, I had I had this fellow ask me, he says, you know, he says, uh, you know, would you teach my kids? I said, no, just no, I'm not doing that. And the next thing I know, I said, okay, because I am a pleaser. I like to help if I can. Um, and then the next thing I had, I had 13 families that I was teaching. And then the year after that, they wouldn't let me escape. And I said, well, by golly, this is fairly pleasant. I don't have to talk to parents. I don't have to, um, I don't have to talk to administrators. I don't have to mark anything, right? And the, and the information is, is decently complex that no one would dare even challenge my subject knowledge. Right. Right. So there you go. Perfect. <laughs> I'm <laughs> glad that it's you at some level. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, like, <laughs> on throughout this conversation, and this sounds great in terms of it ticks every boxes with like the subject knowledge and the administration. So I guess I slightly envy you, but congratulations for the third career. It sounds like the Dale Carnegie uh, training that you went through back when you were 25, which is my current age, seems yes. to be 
this is just my understanding. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed to be okay. a transformative thing, as in it kind of shaped you going forward. Would you say that's well, true? That, well, that, absolutely no question. But I remember deliberately how I felt at that time. I really wanted, you know, I was out of college. It was my first year out of university. I got my degree. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'd really like to get into some kind of an elite program, you know, like the Navy SEALs or something that, that was just impossible to do. But if you could manage it, it would be the greatest feeling of the world. You know, tap into something special, get some sort of training that you couldn't get anywhere else. And that's how I felt about it. And then um, it was fortune. It was just fortune. It was, it was being offered through the company that eventually I came to own, that eventually I came to own. And, um, and I remember talking to my dad about it. It was gone now. And I love my father, uh, as, as many of us do. And I said, Dad, do you think I should do it? Because I don't know if it's some kind of a religious revival thing or whatever. You know, Americans can be this way, right? Right. And, uh, and he says to me, oh, don't be, a, don't be a damn fool. He says, you should do that. So um, I was up for it. I was just up for it. So I, I met a guy who recruited me, who was an instructor, who taught me. And I was ever so impressed with him. You know, the guy had finish. Right. He in, the, in, the, in his manner and his his um, his oracy uh, and how he how he dressed, who he worked for a blue, big blue chip company. And um, and he said to me, he says, meet me at a hotel in a lobby. It's always a good place to meet people. Right. Because it's safe. It's convenient. It's free parking. So I met him there. And he says, I, you know, I think that you'd be um, very good at this. And I'm encouraging you to get involved in the program. And it, it's not overnight. It's going to take you two years to get certified. You'll have to do, you know, 26 weeks in the classroom. You'll have to go to a candidacy school. You'll have to come back and get have more observation done. And if you pass all the markers, then you get in. But he says to me, it did everything for my career. And I see myself in you. So, of course, I was flattered by that. And then he did the most important thing ever that I'd advise any manager, anybody who has a job to recruit people, to get find the best talent. And that itself is one of the greatest skills. Surround yourself with elite talent, right? You know, elite talent. Think of like, you know, think of like if you're going to go knock off a bank, who do you need? You need, a, you need a driver. Which of your buddies is the best driver? He's going to drive, right? Which of your buddies is the best talker? right? He's going to talk. Which of your buddies can do the spreadsheets? He does the numbers. Why? Because they know how to do it, right? So finding talent and recruiting them is the key thing. But I digress. So um, the key thing he said to me was, he said, um, here's what's going to be terrible about the job. And he was smart. This was a Dale Carnegie technique, right? It's called, it's called the weighing technique. First, you give the customer, you're trying to get them to buy something for you the bad reasons, right? You're not hiding anything. You give him the bad reasons. It's too much money, whatever. So he gives me the bad reasons first. He says, he says, it's going to be a long time and you're not going to get paid. You'll do your regular job and then you'll have to go out at night. And he says, and in the spring and in the summer, it's all right. But in the winter, in February, when it's dark at four o'clock and it's so cold, you're chipping the ice off your car. You're not going to be happy when you're driving home at 10, 15 at night. And he told me everything that would be bad. He didn't leave anything out. So much so that he opened the wound and poured salt in it for me. I could feel the wound, right? And then, consistent with the technique, he says, this is what will be very good for you. 
he, you know, it was things like you'll make extra money, you'll make contacts in the room, who will who will buy from you, you'll get offered jobs, and this and that. And you know what? Every single job that I got in my career, when they saw Dale Carnegie, they brought it up, and it was the it was the swing item. It was always the differentiator. It was the equivalent of Oxford or Harvard. That's what it was. So I, it was very lucky that that came into my life, but equally true. I had to graft to do it, right? It wasn't easy. You have to, you gotta pay, you pay for everything. But if you're willing to work at it, you'll get there. And yes, it was transformative to me because um, the philosophy was, was sensational. You know, it was things said, well, he wrote this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And in the late seventies, early eighties, um, it sold millions of copies and every, it was on everybody's reading list. In fact, if you look for self-improvement books, you'll probably see it on a reading list today, how to win friends and influence people. But it was very practical and straightforward, like um, things like uh, never tell a person they're wrong, right? Things like um, the most important name, the na most important word in the human vocabulary is a person's name, but use it sparingly, right? Think things of this sort, right? Give people a reputation to live up to. I mean, when I went into England, when I went to England, um, I, I came in from Boston. I landed in Stockport. I preceded my family, literally parachuted in, right? And I got into this radio station and all of the jobs were occupied. You know, you had the announcers, you had the, the sales director, you had the program director who managed the music list, you know, and then you had the salespeople, and so they didn't know what to do with me, right? They just wanted, they wanted American talent and the, and the British want the American talent when things are going great because the Americans are great salesmen and so forth. So I came in and I looked at the receivables and what receivables are is that that's the list of 30, 60, 90, 120 days that your customers owe you money. So the people who pay you right away, they're on the 30 day list. The people who pay you after a month are on the 60 day list. And for a radio station, anybody on that 120 and that 90 days for payment and 120 and even 180, that's really bad business because you're not going to get that money because it's so old. They just won't pay you. I'm, a, I'm sorry to say that's how people will be. So I looked at it and the business was in, it was in arrears, you know, a great deal of it was 90 to 180 days. So I said, okay, I'll go collect this money. I was going to be a thumb breaker, right? A thumb breaker. I was going to go get the money. But where I came from, that's how we ran our business. You had to pay us. You pay us up front. You pay us at 30 days or we cut you off. But you must pay. And it's all very polite. But you must pay. Say it with me. You must pay. Right? So I remember going to this guy's hotel in Stockport. Right? And he owed a lot of money for the radio station. It was like five or 7,000 pounds. And um, so I went one day. And I waited in the lobby and I asked for the guy and I said, I'm, my name is Michael Benjamin and I'm the commercial director of Imagine FM. And I'd like to speak to the general manager and I gave his name, Joe Soaps, making that up. And they said, just a minute. And the woman comes back out and she says, oh, he's not available. And I said, well, uh, I'd like to wait. And she said, suit yourself. So I had my work with me. And I sat there for two hours and she comes paddling over to me and she said, um, are you still waiting for Mr. Soaps? I said, indeed I am. I, I respect his time and I'll wait as long as it takes. And she says, well, um, he, he says he can't come out 
And, and I said, well, then I'll continue to wait until he can. And so at the end of that day, he came out, must've been closer to four o'clock, but I'd been there at 10 doing my work, making phone calls, getting on with it, but sitting in that lobby because it was a message that I was going to wait. And also that humility was important too. I wasn't going to demand. I was going to show respect for him. This is Dale Carnegie. And he comes out eventually. And, um, and I say to him, nice to see you. Do you recognize this debt of $7,000? And he says, well, not all of it. And I said, well, how much do you recognize? And he says, some of it. And I said, look, I'm a reasonable fellow, but this money is really old. And, and here's what I propose to you. I give, I'm going to give him a reputation I live up to. You owe 7500 approximately, right? I'm guessing it's nearer to that number than far away. So I want you to think about this, about what you think is fair, considering what you've used here. And whatever you tell me, I will accept as long as it's, if I think it's fair. He says to me, I'll pay you $5,000. I said, well, that wasn't so hard, was it? I said, you've gotten a deal. I said, no. Um, one of my people will call you every Monday and you must pick up the phone and they're going to say to you, we're going to come by and pick up that check, right? So how much can you give each week? And he gave a number, $500 pounds, right? Whatever. I said, well, she'll call you. She'll ask you for that 500 pounds and you must have it ready. If you don't meet that requirement, then I'll turn it over to a collection agency. Is that fair? Fair. And that's what I did all across Manchester. And we collected all that money. Didn't have to break any thumbs, but it was Dale Carnegie technique. It was about being polite, giving a reputation to live up to, right? And if you do, <clears throat> people will typically come forward. So yes, it was transformative for me. Absolutely was in many, many ways. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, no, and as someone who's actually read that book as well and applied some of the techniques in not only the classroom, but in my own life, I can really kind of see the value in it and really look at how important texts are even from when, when was the initial book written i think like 19 i'm guessing the 70s I and mean, you could google it it would tell you the copyright on that i'm guessing i'm guessing the 70s yeah guessing. so it still stands up today no i think it's fantastic and uh, yeah just coming to the final stages i suppose mike now that you are on your third career and i suppose from everything that you've learned today this might be tricky to answer it's related to radio to education perhaps personally what are you most proud of i'm most proud of uh i am most proud of the fact that i went into education exactly the time that my sons needed my help and i and that slingshotted me into a place in my life where I came back to Boston and I said what well, my dad was dying my mother needed my my family needed me um, and I wanted to come home. There was something very real about that. But I came back and I said, right, what do I want to do with my life? I need to make money. So how will I make money? And, and from experience, people are only going to give you work to do that you're, you're currently doing. You know how to do the work, your experience. Nobody wants to hire somebody to learn on the job, particularly when you get to a certain age. They, need, they, they want to hire an ace who can perform immediately. Make rain right now, today. I hire you today. You start working tomorrow. You're going to perform tomorrow. I'm not, there's no ramp up period. You get in, you play. So, so I had to choose, probably choose a job with an education because that's what I was most currently trained to do. Secondly, I said, um, uh, you know, what's important to me, really important to me. And the answer to that is friendship. Friendship's really important to me, my friends. Loyalty, I tell my students all the time, loyalty matters. It matters a great deal. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. 
a great deal, right? And you give what you get in the world, right? And once someone knows that you love them, then they'll run through a wall of fire for you. That is, that is real leadership. So friendship was important to me. Um, education was important to me and service was important to me, right? Helping, helping. It might be a function of getting older, but I don't think so. I think that, uh, I think that when you're helping people and getting paid for it is what I am, helping people and getting paid for it, right? Dyslexic kids who need me, ADHD kids who need me, autistic kids who need me, right? Um, high flyers who've lost their confidence who need me. It's really satisfying. So the thing I'm satisfied the most is helping people. That's the most satisfying thing. Excellent. You've got to make money. You've got to find a way to make money in your life. <laughs> if you could combine the two. I think it's Ikigai, <laughs> where it's uh, if something you like, something you're good at, something that helps other people, and something you're paid for, then you've hit the sweet spot. But you have to take all for it. I, I so agree. I mean, I say, I heard, I heard, I, I, I gathered this from someone else. Uh, a student's father said to me, I said, how's your son doing? He says, you know, I tell him, the only thing that matters is you got to find something that you're really good at, that you want to do. That's what matters. You got to find something that you're really good at, that you want to do. And if you do that, then you'll, you'll be fine. You'll make money. You'll be okay. But you've got to find something that you're really good at. And there lies there lies the rub. That was the answer. And final question, Mike. If you could, say if you had a phone now and you could call 25-year-old you so you could go back in time and give you some advice, what would you mm. say? Certain things I can't say on the air. <laughs> I could only share that with you in private over a pint. Um, but I would say... Um, I would say you did good, kid. You did good. Meaning there were a lot of lows, you know, getting divorced, lose, losing your house. I mean, how do, you, how do you recover from these things? But you do, right? And when I said you did good, kid, you, you came back from that, you know? Some people would have just folded the tent completely, right? Just gone wandering and never come out of it. Um, and also, um, I've got my health. I feel strong. I've got a good business. It's growing. I'm in the action. I wouldn't. I, would, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say to do anything differently outside maybe one or two things. We and as human beings, as we know, as students of literature, right? The human condition is about failure, and it is about you know certainly not repeating certain things that we did when we were younger, right? But I wouldn't change a thing really. I'd say nice going, kid. You did okay. Hang in there. Keep swinging. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mike. I've really enjoyed catching up. I've really enjoyed hearing your insights. And once again, thank you very much for your help, not just now, but also back in my school years. Much appreciated. Glad to see you doing great. Keep charging the hill. See you later.